this is Queer Diagnosis. I'm your host, Zaria. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm Shreetha, and my pronouns are also she, her, hers. Our guest today is Davy Rand, a third-year medical student at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. Hi, Davy. Could you please introduce yourself with your pronouns? Hi. Yeah. My name is Davy Rand. I use they, them. Can you tell us how you identify with the LGBTQ plus community? I generally identify as queer. Um, sometimes I'll also say bisexual, also say trans, non-binary, or gay. Um, but when people ask overall, I like to just say queer because it kind of encompasses all of those things into one. What are some situations in which you would make that distinction where you would specify whether you're um, like trans versus bisexual versus so on and so forth? It definitely has to do with how safe I feel in a situation and also how knowledgeable I feel the people I'm with are. Um, sometimes if I don't feel like explaining what each word means, uh, then I just won't. Um, saying queer or gay is a really good shorthand when people don't really know the specifics. Um, if I'm like, say, at a party and looking to date someone, then I'll say bisexual to kind of make my preferences more clear. Um, if I'm in a place where I feel it's safe to say that I'm trans, um, I usually say trans and non-binary. Um, I like to use both because I feel they both apply to me. Um, but if I feel like a safe isn't a space isn't very safe, then I'm definitely not going to say trans. To be honest, I'm much more comfortable saying gay, um, even over saying bisexual. I've also I've had some friends who have um, also had like the same thing where they don't tell everyone that they're trans because of course um, it's going to change. It could possibly change the dynamic that you have with the person, and um, you. I feel like, and I can't speak for um, their experiences, of course, but I've seen that sometimes they will tell somebody, and then everything shifts in a way that they didn't mm -hmm. expect. Even if the person comes out saying that they're very accepting, um, and so that definitely makes sense to me. I was just wondering because um, I know with like bisexual, like the bisexual identity, some people say that it's. Or at least I've been trying to read about it, and people have said it's like bisexually research to just say gay. So I was wondering, do you have like a take on that? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm basically an elder gay because I came out really, really young, um, like over a decade ago at this point. And when I was coming out, like I feel bisexual was just coming into the mainstream, and people didn't really use it that much. Um, most people did just say gay. And there was a lot of stereotypes about bisexuals. There's the idea of the like promiscuous um, high school girl who just wanted to seem cool. Not that there's anything wrong with that either. Um, but a lot of people misunderstood what bisexual was. A lot of gay people wouldn't date bisexual people because there was the idea that they're really gay and just in the closet. So I think a lot of people felt more comfortable at the time not saying bisexual. And I specifically chose to say it because I wanted to say, hey, this is, a real thing, it's an important thing, it's not a shameful thing. Um, and for me, I still go by those old queer politics. Um, so I'm not so up to date with the modern ones in the same way. I've kind of had that identity my whole life and just stuck with it. Very cool. So I know that you wrote a book called The Rainbow Book for your medical school. I was just wondering what exactly that is and what inspired you to create it. 
Yeah. So my school, actually, one of the reasons I went to my school is they have something called the Blue Book, which is a student written guide. I say it's maybe 100 pages about how to succeed as a student at that school. And I thought that was so impressive. It tells you, you know, um, things you can do in the area. If you've never been to Rochester before, it tells you how to like approach teachers, how to write nice emails, what to expect from courses, how to do well on exams, how to reach out to upper years. And I loved it. It made a huge difference for me. But when I arrived at the school, I felt like there were a lot of things um, like a hidden curriculum that I wasn't really aware of before coming to school. There were a lot of things I didn't know how to do. I didn't know how to um, talk to people about discrimination and how to get it addressed. I didn't know how to suss out if faculty was uh, LGBT friendly or not. I didn't know how to approach a researcher to ask about LGBT research. And I felt that there was a real need for students coming in to have that resource, to know how to live in Rochester and go to the school as an LGBT student. So some of the things in the Rainbow Book, um, I actually have it pulled up because it's a little long. So I'm checking out the table of contents. By the way, you can find this book if you just Google URMC Rainbow Book for University of Rochester Medical Center. It was published on their website. Um, so it's available now and we've gotten amazing feedback in the last couple of years of LGBT students who've looked at it before coming here. Um, so in it, it includes sections on like where to go for um, LGBT safe bars, LGBT safe gyms, um, food, community, haircuts, um, things like that. It talks about the health resources that are LGBT friendly and LGBT trained uh, on our campus, uh, how to deal with the non-discrimination policy, how to register your gender with the school, how to make sure people know your pronouns, where the gender uh, neutral bathrooms are. It also talks about like every element of our curriculum, which includes something about LGBT health. It talks about um, research projects students have done in the past, uh, other career projects that are going on that, that the school is doing that people can take part in. Um, we have a list of student spotlights to celebrate queer students and their achievements here. And we also have this like constantly updating faculty out and ally list who people can reach out to. So you mentioned like a hidden curriculum. So currently how well do you feel like the curriculum that you've been going through kind of addresses the concerns of LGBTQ health? I mean, I know that the average medical school, if they include LGBT content, has four hours of LGBT content in all four years. And I would say, unfortunately, my school is not that different. That's like a crazy statistic. Like when you said four <laughs> hours, I was like, wait, there's four years, four hours. That's yeah. it's, okay. That's a very, very jarring um, statistic. So do you think like the Rainbow Book can kind of help in that by spotlighting it? So like it further encourages LGBTQ curriculums in research? Yeah, I mean, I really hope so. One of the projects that I did with a couple other students and that I know other students are doing even now is um, addressing areas in the curriculum that could be made more LGBT friendly. And I think that has produced positive changes over the years, even though it's kind of a slow going process. As students, we don't really know how to do curriculum change and it has to get approved by a lot of different people. And then it has to make, we have to make sure it's being maintained over the years. But I do think definitely highlighting those projects and showing that students, both current students and students who are interested in coming are invested in having more of a curriculum has been really, really important. Um, and our LGBT affinity group actually has done supplemental lectures on their own with outside organizations, which has been really powerful as well. 
So obviously the Rainbow Book is like this great tool if you're part of the queer community. So can you talk about your own experiences navigating medical school as a member of the trans community? Yeah, um, that's what I'm going to write my book about. Um, I think it's, it's hard to say all of it in one sentence, um, but I think it's been scary for sure, but it's also been exciting. It's been uplifting. Um, it's been kind of all the emotions that I've had ever um, throughout my course in medical school. I mean, it's obviously it's, it's scary, which is what people think of immediately in that, like, I don't know who's queer friendly. I don't know who's gonna treat me differently because of my identity. I don't know what discrimination I might face. And I have actually faced discrimination. I've faced discriminatory measures. I've had a doctor yell at me for an hour in a locked room about um, why trans people shouldn't be in medicine and trans people shouldn't be doctors and trans people shouldn't do sports <laughs> and all sorts of things. Um, at the same time, I, as a trans person, have been able to do so much in my school saying like, listen, I'm coming from this community. I have competency in this community and this is what the community needs to feel more comfortable here. And people have listened. Um, for example, our school, I believe for the first time ever after my year came in, started recording who applied, who openly applied as transgender and including it in the demographic statistics year by year. So they know who to reach out to more. Um, and it's been exciting in that I can trailblaze in that way. And at the same time, there's actually so many more queer and trans people in medicine than I ever expected. Um, certainly a lot of them are not out necessarily. I know when I started going to Rochester, people said our year was the first year to have trans people, um, which I have learned over time is absolutely not true, but we are certainly the loudest. Um, actually, my class has four trans people, openly trans people at the very least, um, which in a class of 100 is fairly high, it's like 4%. Um, and overall, my class is actually almost one sixth or one fifth queer. So having other students go through that journey with me has been so exciting. It, there's such an intense community feeling. Every time I meet a trans student at any other medical student, we're like immediate friends. I'm like so excited to talk to them about their experiences. And there's a lot of work being done in this area. And it's so exciting to be at the forefront of that, but also not so forefront that you don't have other people doing it with you. So what was, I mean, thank you for sharing that. Like there was a doc or somebody who, it was a physician who you're with who yes, yeah, kind of yelled at you. That's insane. And I'm really sorry that you had that experience. And um, I think I've said this so many times, but I think it bears a reminder that I'm five feet tall and I can take anybody. <laughs> Uh, but of course, violence is never the uh, never the answer. Um, so I was just so it seems like you, Rochester, the students are pretty active, uh, and Absolutely. you guys are making changes and trailblazing. But um, what was the school's response to the Rainbow Book? The school is very supportive of the Rainbow Book. I mean, it's published on the admissions website. Um, the admissions director, Dr. Nobe, our uh, her first year that she recruited was our year. And our year was like a phenomenally queer year. So she has been integral in um, addressing the lack of queer people in medicine, where a lot of schools like don't even consider queer people underrepresented in medicine. They don't even kind of know that they should exist in medicine in the first place. So I, it's been a great response. Um, I had no trouble at all getting help on the book, getting support for the book, and yeah, getting it up on the website for people to use. When you were applying to medical schools, uh, and this is something that I'm thinking of as I start compiling, compiling a list of uh, medical schools that I want to go to, um, did you look at how 
I guess, medical admissions committees and just the schools themselves. Um, like, is there a way to find out what the hidden curriculum is for the LGBTQ plus community in these schools or not really? That's a great question. I think nothing beats knowing someone at the school. Um, I do think that if you are applying in the process of applying, um, I would say most medical students and if you see any out and ally list faculty on a website are totally okay with being cold emailed. Um, and, you know, maybe even like DM on Twitter if you see someone or something like that and just saying like, hey, like I am a LGBT student, I want to apply, do you have any advice? I mean, the amount of willingness to mentor that I've seen in the community is really wonderful and really unique. I think because a lot of people, a lot of us didn't come in with mentorship. So we want to pass it on. Um, when I was doing research into different schools, I looked at kind of the LGBT friendliness of the cities they were in, um, what the demographics were. I would Google like their name and LGBT. And if an article came up that was like, the school was sued because of this, I'd be like, nope, <laughs> not that one. Um, but if other things came up that seemed much more affirming, then I would certainly look into it more. I also asked a lot when I got my interview on interview days um, is a great chance to ask the students what their experience is. Um, I, students will be honest, they should be honest. I certainly was honest about the pros and cons of coming to my school because the most important thing is, you know, people come and they feel happy and supported. Um, so it's certainly possible to get an assessment of the hidden curriculum. Um, if you don't have connections in the medical system, but I do think it's difficult, which is why actually I'm encouraging people to take the rainbow book and make it for their schools. Like if anyone wants to steal this, like, please, all I ask is that you like post it everywhere so I can get to see it. <laughs> I was going to say, I think that it's crazy to me that this is just one, like this is a resource you've created for just one school. I feel like it should be implemented on a national level. You know, it, it just seems that important because I kind of read through it and I kind of wish that like where I live, at least, it's generally conservative. And I didn't really know who I could like speak to growing up, just in like support of uh, my friends as an ally, but also as part of like the queer community. So I, I feel like that should be implemented, not even just like on a medical school level, just like for an area level. But I know so much of, of that comes from networking within your community. So what does trans healthcare mean to you? So trans healthcare to me is all about cultural competency. I like to say trans healthcare is just healthcare um, because there's really nothing that we're providing for trans people that we don't also provide for people of all identities and all bodies. Um, the one exception might be bottom surgery, which has been designed for trans people in large part, but I mean, things like hormone replacement therapy, we've been using on people for years and years um, for all sorts of reasons and all ages. So. There's children who have, for example, um, adrenal insufficiency, which means that you know these organs in their bodies called the adrenals produce hormones and theirs don't produce enough. So we give them hormones to replace those hormones and these children turn out totally fine and wonderful. Um, there's a lot of conditions that can cause adrenal insufficiency. I mean, even something like asthma, which most people have heard of, um, people who take steroids regularly for asthma might have adrenal insufficiency and they might need to take hormones to replace that. And that's totally fine. Um, things like uh, double mastectomies, which trans people refer to as top surgery. That's something we certainly provide for people all the time, um, especially as the awareness of breast cancer is on the rise. There are people who get it without 
any indications that they currently have breast cancer. There's people who get it because they're worried they might have breast cancer. Um, so I argue that there's really no difference in the healthcare we're providing for trans people. It's just that we might call it different things. And that's where I think the, the difference comes in. I mean, a lot of doctors don't know the basic terminology of the queer community as a whole or of the trans community specifically, which I think is a huge issue in medical education, like we were talking about before. Um, and a big issue because a lot of people feel that they don't have to learn it or that it's too complicated to learn, which is like crazy, or excuse me, which is like wild um, from people who like learn how to say like sphenopalatine ganglioneuralgia, you know, or like cholidocolithiasis or borborygmy. Like people learn on average 10,000 new words in medical school. They can learn words like top surgery, bottom surgery, um, HRT, which is hormone replacement therapy. The, the big thing with trans healthcare is knowing, first of all, how to recognize that trans people exist. So in the intake forms, you should have options for people to put their pronouns, options for people to put their gender identity. Um, when they come in for the actual um, meetings in clinic, there's something called SOGI data, which is on every uh, electronic chart that we take for patients. If you click right under their name, um, SOGI stands for Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Data, where you can put in for every single patient what their orientation is, what their gender identity is, what they want their body parts to be called. Um, it actually is like very extensive. It has open answers and multiple choice depending on what the patient needs. And this data is crucial to knowing who we are serving, how we are serving them, what the outcomes are, but most doctors don't know about it, or if they do, they don't take it regularly. They might only take it for someone who they think is visibly trans, which is another thing that like you really can't tell by looking at someone what their gender identity is. Um, there's also something called trans broken arm syndrome, which I think a lot of very well-meaning physicians fall prey to. And this is the idea that um, when trans people come in for healthcare, because often in schools when trans healthcare is taught, it's exclusively taught in the context of like LGBT health. People don't realize that trans people also need healthcare in like every other area of health. And they'll assume that whatever they're there for is a trans reason, or they'll turn that reason into a trans reason. So what does that mean? It means like if a trans person comes in with a broken arm, instead of treating a broken arm, the physician might be like, well, so tell me about your gender. How do you feel about that? You know, do you, do you want to change that? What are you doing for that? And meanwhile, you have this person here with a broken arm being like, hello. <laughs> I really just need this taken care of. Um, so I think those are the big things, just recognizing people exist, recognizing all their problems aren't related to being transgender, um, recognize that being transgender can be a wonderful, beautiful, empowering thing for people. It's not always negative and devastating and uh, shouldn't be the leading point of interviews to assume that your patient needs or wants like quote unquote help with being trans. Um, and then finally, just recognizing that their healthcare is already in use. And if you feel anxious about providing this healthcare to trans people, even if you provide it to other patients, there are lots of very short programs where you can get a certificate to learn how to provide trans-specific healthcare. You don't actually need specialized training. Can you tell us what it's been like for you pursuing trans healthcare? Or actually, scratch that, it's not trans healthcare, it's simply healthcare for a patient. Exactly. <laughs> um, so to answer your first question, just about uh, medical record and charts, uh, this is totally anecdotal, but every charting system I've seen has included areas for SOGI data, and I've been, done that in multiple states. Um, I can't say it's the charting system everyone uses, but if they don't, you can certainly still put it in the uh, general note for the patients. Um, and I, 
every system has that because you need to be able to write a note for your patients. And it would be really helpful for patients who use, for example, different pronouns or who are seeing multiple genders and don't want to experience discrimination and don't want to have that conversation again and again to have those notes for the providers to look over before they come in. Um, and as to your second question about what is it like to be a trans patient pursuing tra trans healthcare or healthcare, um, it's been very hard, I would say. I don't come out to most of my doctors, even as someone who's out in every area of my life. Um, and I've been out for a long time. I have no issues being out. I'm very proud of being out. Um, I have no worries about like my reputation. My reputation is based on being out at this point. Um, but it's so complex and it honestly ends up being like a waste of time, sometimes a waste of my time where I don't, I'm too exhausted to explain to a physician what my identity means. And I'm too tired of seeing physicians stumble around it and not know how to react to it that I honestly just don't say it sometimes. And this is even when, now that I kind of am a medical student, I know how to read patient charts. I've glanced over to computers that the doctors are looking at and I've seen my gender identity and my pronouns listed on the chart that they've pulled up and doctors still don't acknowledge it. Um, so at that point, I think, well, if they haven't acknowledged it already, what's, what's gonna happen when I bring it up? Um, so it's been difficult. I mean, even situations where, for example, I did pursue and I have pursued and I am pursuing um, trans-specific like hormone replacement therapy and voice training and things like that. Um, there's like no trans, there's maybe a couple, couple trans physicians who are providing that sort of care. But I mean, their waiting lists are like five years, 10 years, there's so much need. And then there are cis straight providers providing trans healthcare, but it's always scary. You don't really know what they know. Um, when I have gone to them, I've ended up sometimes having to go to pediatric clinics because there's such an emphasis on adolescent care for queer people that people kind of forget that trans people can be older than like 18. Um, plenty of trans people are. So as someone who's essentially aging out of pediatric care, has been aged out of pediatric care, that's been a very peculiar experience. And I've even had the experience of being referred by a trans clinic for a trans related reason to uh, another clinic that is supposedly LGBT friendly. I've showed up wearing my pronoun pin on my chest, speaking about why I'm there, which is for trans related reasons and still had the physicians misgender me and think I was cisgender. And it gets to a point where it's kind of like people will see what they wanna see. Um, and that's a scary reality in medicine. And I hate to say it, I know how terrified a lot of trans people are of accessing healthcare. Um, and I really don't want to discourage anyone from accessing the care they need and for demanding the affirming care that they need. But it is a reality that sometimes I just don't have the energy. It seems like those four hours of, uh, I guess, focus of, on LGBTQ plus healthcare uh, throughout like four years of medical students, us four years of medical school, is just for those four out invisible trans students who are in your uh, year. So I definitely mm. don't, I mean, it's a one-to-one -one ratio, but I don't think it's in a good way. <laughs> yeah, we each, we each get an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, each of you. And they knew exactly how many students were coming in and they planned to base off that. So in the, um, the Rainbow Book, are there names of physicians who are LGBTQ plus friendly and know how to provide care for trans individuals? That's a great question. I certainly hope so. Um, I took my out and ally list from a list that already existed at the school 
and have added to it from my own personal experience when I've met physicians that I've kind of personally vetted and thought that they would be great for the out and aisle list and asked them if they wanted to be included. So I can't say that everyone on that list has had training. I certainly think there are people on that list who are very well-meaning and have not necessarily been trained. And I think that's extremely common in LGBT health because a lot of people don't know of any LGBT health trainings. Um, there aren't very many and they're not, it's not incorporated into the everyday curriculum. I will also say that we do have um, actual queer providers also on the list. <laughs> um, so at the very least, there's that. <laughs> what are your thoughts on allied physicians and also queer physicians to provide affirmative care for all members of the LGBTQ plus community? I think it certainly is pressure on the queer physicians. I know even as a medical student, I felt a lot of pressure um, to be out, to be loud, to be there for students in whatever way I can all the time, because there is such a huge need. Um, for me, as someone who went into med school knowing I wanted to do LGBT health, um, it's not a huge negative pressure. It's like, this is what I wanna do. I wish I was getting paid for it now, but it's what I wanna do anyways. It's what I'm passionate about. I don't get bored of it. I like doing it, but I certainly think it is emotionally exhausting for a lot of people. Um, and I think it is exhausting for queer physicians because they truly know what we're lacking. Um, they know how much the system needs to go. They've also seen the system evolve over time. So they do have that insight, which is also good. Um, I think for allies, this is just my guess because I'm not an ally, um, there's less pressure. I think there's less pressure because there's maybe less understanding. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand how the queer community has so many different identities within it and different cultures within it. And that relates to different experiences, resources, networks within it. Um, I think a lot of people don't actually distinguish between the LGBT in the community, um, which is not necessarily the wrong thing to do, but sometimes it's not what students need. So I think physicians who are allied because they kind of know less of what students need, they feel more comfortable providing it because it's less of a burden because they think there's less to provide. That makes sense. No, I think, yeah, I think it definitely makes sense. And it also, for me, brings up like a previous interview that we did where like, I think especially now allyship has almost become like a buzzword and everyone wants to be an ally without like necessarily doing the work of being an ally. And I think I definitely have to constantly remind myself that there's like more to learn and there's like, I should constantly be listening to other people's experiences because I think it is like, as you said, really easy to oversimplify it, I guess. So we were looking at your resume and you have done so many things abroad and it looks, <laughs> it all looks really, really cool. But can you talk about how your experiences have varied within the LGBTQ plus community in the United States as compared with the places you've traveled to abroad? Absolutely. So for the people who I didn't send my CV to, which at this point after med school applications feels like everyone has it, um, I traveled a lot my whole life. My parents are professors, they love traveling. So essentially we moved every year or so, every two years. So I've lived in maybe 20-ish countries. Um, I have not been out in all of those countries. Um, I mean, first of all, our concept of gender and sexuality in America is completely different from anywhere else. So that's really important to recognize. I mean, there are a lot of communities that have multiple genders um, beyond our concept of binary genders. There are a lot of communities whose 
idea of sexuality isn't necessarily related to sexual behavior, but maybe who you end up marrying. Um, or maybe it's related to behavior, but not who you end up marrying. Um, or any variation within, I mean, there's so much variation in the world. Um, I really recommend people look up, like there's a Wikipedia page of like different genders um, around the world and it's fascinating and wonderful. Um, my experience, I think because I am at my core, a American and also a New Yorker, um, I am most comfortable being out as queer in America and in New York because I understand all the queer codes. I understand how to dress queer. I understand how to talk queer. I understand, you know, the lingo and the way people move and the kind of events people go to. I know how to meet people and I know how to also tell when someone isn't so LGBT friendly. And when I go abroad, um, it takes much longer for me to suss that out. And the places I've been abroad um, where I've been most comfortable being out is honestly the places that I would say are more westernized because not because I think that they're more accepting necessarily. I think they just have similar ideas to orientation and gender as I identify with. So it's easier for me to come out because I don't have to explain what it is, um, but it's certainly scary. I would say that I in general have never felt as comfortable being queer as I have in big cities in America. Um, and many, many times I felt that I've been in danger if I say anything. Um, so there are a lot of places in the world where it's just a completely different level. It's a different level of fighting. I mean, our fight for so long was the right to get married and some people are still fighting for the right to legally be gay. Um, so it, it's really different, I would say. Um, I've used kind of LGBT guidebooks to different countries, which has been really helpful. Um, but for the most part, it's a learning experience. So I'm usually not out in other countries until I meet people who are out and hear from them what the experience is like. And just to clarify, um, did you, you volunteered primarily in these countries, right? Yeah, I did a lot of um, healthcare volunteering and I tried to do LGBT volunteering whenever I could. A lot of times that looked like HIV volunteering um, with like a subspecialty on the queer community who I would kind of build a relationship with the community before I started seeing people like openly come to me. Um, but absolutely, I tried to do work everywhere I went. Are there any patients that um, you've perhaps come out to that you remember and it was a positive experience that you might be able to share? Sure, yeah. Um, actually, I was on my site clerkship quite recently um, when we I was on the adolescent floor, there was um, a, adolescent who was kind of struggling, having a difficult time. Um, they were strapped down um, because they were threatening to hurt themselves and kind of no one could get them to calm down. And I, in my like med student, absolute hubris because <laughs> I am not like a you know teen whisper or anything like that. I was like, oh, I can do it. I can go in there and calm them down. And I got very lucky because I walked in and I looked at the patient and I was like, oh my God, this is a trans patient. Um, and they're being misgendered and they're very upset. And it was immediately clear to me what was going on. Um, so I immediately came out to the patient. I was like, hi, like, um, I, my name is Davy. These are my pronouns. Um, I, how do you identify? What's your name? Um, and just with that introduction, like their whole demeanor kind of changed and it was incredible to see. And I just sat with them and I didn't provide any treatment. I didn't give any medication. Um, I didn't even end up writing a patient note for them. I just sat with them 
and just listened to their experience being trans in the hospital and answered their questions about being a trans medical student because they'd never met someone like that before. And it was very powerful, I think for both of us, certainly for me, I was like on the edge of tears the whole time thinking like, oh my God, I'm so happy that I came in. I'm so happy I can help this patient feel more comfortable and feel empowered because they were someone interested in healthcare down the line. Um, and it was amazing to stand there and be like, yeah, it's possible. It's absolutely possible. Um, and also to be able to advocate for them. And I, you know, speaking of SOGI data, which is my favorite thing, I updated their chart immediately. The physicians were super nice. They saw the chart and I actually had people come to me and say like, wow, like we had no idea, you know, thank you for updating. Like, how did you know? Um, which was so funny to me because I had no idea how to answer. I think there's, there's something called GADAR and I think it's real. <laughs> um, you know, I think having been a trans patient and knowing the fear and uncertainty that comes with that, you recognize what it looks like on someone else's face. Um, but I also said, you know, if you ask, you don't have to recognize it. You just have to ask. Um, so I think it made a difference to me, it made a difference to the patient and made a difference to the doctors, which was really awesome. I know in speaking with previous medical, uh, medical students through the intro that we've done, um, it seems like the adolescent medical teams are usually more open to talking about gender identity and sexual orientation. Is that your experience as well? Absolutely, 100%. And this is actually uh, like a hill that I will probably die on, um, which is that LGBT healthcare is not just teenage healthcare. And I think um, it has, it's, I'm never going to say it's a bad thing for teens to get healthcare and, you know, a focus on the care that they need. It is so hard being a teenager. I remember, even if I hadn't been a queer teenager, just being a teenager is hard. Um, but the lack of understanding that queerness has existed throughout history is striking and terrifying. And people really think like, because they just started hearing about trans people or bi people or non-binary people or whatever, that they just started existing. And that's just not true. Um, but I think that the medical field really reflects that. And I have had many instances where I've been seeking research and I've said, I wanna work with older queer patients. I wanna do queer research on older people. And people have just directed me to adolescent healthcare. Um, so, it is not something that exists in such a consolidated form um, in the way that LGBT healthcare exists for adolescent care. They're absolutely more open. Um, and I think there's just more resources for it and more recognition because there are more people who are out. You know, right now we have a lot of teenagers coming out, which is amazing. And we also have it in the news constantly for better or for worse. So people are gonna know about it. I think if we had people talking about older careers in the news, then we probably have more healthcare to go with it. I haven't been very closely following the news, but I do know from like the podcasts I've been listening to, a lot of them have been talking about there's been a, a sort of rise in like anti-trans legislation that's been coming up in like different states. And uh, obviously it's not surprising, I guess. But, you know, I think, as you said, like for a really long time, the fight was for marriage equality. And now this kind of seems to be the next big political fight, I guess. What do you kind of attribute that to or what are your thoughts on it? That's a great question. I think that queer acceptance 
has kind of gone in the direction of like G to L to B to T. I think that the first thing was having gay people be accepted for being gay. That was the first fight. The second fight was having lesbians being accepted for being gay. That was the second fight because what women wanting sex outside of men, that's crazy. Um, the third thing was bisexuals because, um, you know, it was listed as a symptom of BPD, for example, which is borderline personality disorder. People thought that people were inherently neurotic for being bisexual. Now, when I tell that to people, and that was a thing that existed when I was a child and a teenager, um, people in medicine are always shocked. They're like, what, bisexuality is a symptom? No, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, I remember that. I remember my doctor telling me that as a child. Um, and so I think trans is absolutely the next thing. I think that people, are more comfortable questioning orientation than they are questioning gender because it hasn't been done so often in our society because our society is also so based on gender roles people are very uncomfortable with it i mean i think that anti-trans rhetoric is very much linked to sexism it's very much linked to racism um, trans women of color have the highest rates of violence against them um, it's certainly related to classism i think that in some ways it's a self-serving cycle because these are people who are the most vulnerable in society. So they get more hate because there's not that much uh, ability to fight back. Um, it's interesting. Um, in some ways, I think it's also very powerful because people know what trans is. I mean, I the first time I heard the word trans, I was in college. <laughs> and this is a person who had been out as queer for such a long time. Um, and now like everyone knows what trans is. In some ways, I think that whenever you start getting hate, it's gearing up for a stronger response of love and care and support. So that's where I hope we're going. So on a more general scale, uh, what improvements do you see um, happening, I guess, for the LGBTQ plus community um, in terms of healthcare in the future? I do think overall people are becoming much more aware of pronouns, even just what pronouns are even though there's something everyone uses every day, um, a lot of people don't think about them. And uh, even right now, as we're Zooming, like I see you have your pronouns in your Zoom name. I see a lot of medical students and friends and everyone kind of doing that in their Zoom profiles. I see them do it in their email signups. I see faculty doing it as well. Um, I see people wearing pronoun pins, and this is all regardless of whether they're cis or trans or whatever. Um, it's open to everyone. I also see cis people, who use uh, pronouns that aren't necessarily binary, you know, women who use she and they, um, some, or even like a man who uses he and she, which is super common historically in the gay community anyways. Um, people are learning about what this is and they're pushing the boundaries of it, regardless of how they personally identify. And I think that's absolutely wonderful and very powerful. Um, I mean, I also see, and I, I think these are like the hot topics. So we're seeing more in these, um, I see all gender or gender neutral bathrooms where I didn't see them before. Um, and that's one thing I was really impressed by coming into medical school, actually. I did not think those would exist. And there's tons all over and they're not called unisex. Um, not that there's anything wrong with unisex. I love a good unisex bathroom, but it shows the fact that the university, the institution was actually thinking about this. You know, they actually said, oh, there's, there's this controversy over gender and we are gonna address it in this peaceful and important way. Um, so certainly there's really positive changes being made. I actually didn't consider, I, I've noticed that change too, actually, now that you mentioned it from talking about unisex bathrooms to gender neutral, I didn't attribute that to um, 
I guess, increasing visibility of the LGBTQ plus community. And it's interesting how you made that connection because it makes sense to me now. Totally makes sense. On our first floor, actually, there's a new sign that's posted that has, um, like, it has a figure of a male, a female. Um, I'm assuming they're different, their version of non, someone who's non-binary. <laughs> and then, <laughs> um, and then also like a wheelchair for, um, and this, yeah, uh, the four building, genders. Yeah. The four genders, my, my half dress, half pants, and wheelchair. <laughs> yeah, my favorite four nations of the Avatar state. Um, I hope that you know that <laughs> reference. <laughs> um, absolutely, I'm gay. What do you take me for? <laughs> so, if you could turn back time uh, and talk to your pre med self, what would you tell them? Oh my God, yeah. You sent me this question ahead of time, and I've just been staring at it like, whoa, this is a hard question. Um, I think I've changed so much in medical school in ways that I have yet to identify um, from being a pre-med student. I would say first and foremost that LGBT health is actually a real thing. It's a real field that you can go into. It's a real study of research. Um, when I came into medical school, I wasn't so sure. Um, I knew of LGBT clinics, but I didn't really know what they did. And I didn't know about queer research and I didn't know about queer networks that all these things existed. You, if you want to go into queer healthcare, you absolutely can. Um, so I would say that first and foremost, because it's not, your school is not gonna tell you, you're not gonna have a clerkship most likely in LGBT health. Um, you know, this path is not presented to students as a usual path to take. So a lot of people don't know it exists. So I would certainly tell myself that. Um, I think I would also, tell myself, and this is true for anyone applying to medical school, um, don't waste your time trying to kiss up to people or impress people or make people like you who you wouldn't want to work with anyhow. I think I spent a lot of time doing this, um, going to conferences, for example, meeting impressive people and thinking, oh my God, I should make sure they like me just in case, even if they're like incredibly bigoted. And I've reached a point where I'm like, no, there's enough people who aren't bigoted in medicine that I don't need these people to advance my career. I don't need to pretend I'm something that I'm not to be able to work as a doctor. I think that has been true for people in the past. I think it's true for people in certain areas of the country, um, but it doesn't have to be true everywhere. Um, and then I think the final thing I would tell myself is that don't be afraid to ever stand up. If I don't stand up, it's often at the cost of my own dignity, my own mental health, um, my own ability to continue working with the passion for medicine that I really value. Um, it's experiencing a concept that I just learned about called moral injury. Um, it is emotionally painful, it is hard, it is draining when you see something or have to act in a certain way that goes against your inherent values. And there's so much that burns us out in medical school. There's so much that drains us. The last thing we need to do is to drain ourselves. Um, so I would say like, don't be afraid to stand up, but also at the same time, be prepared for nothing to change. Be prepared to face pushback. And, you know, way is the value of kind of protecting myself from moral injury worth the potential injury that might come from standing up. To me, it often is. It might not be that way for everyone, that's completely fine. But I think it's important that people think about that choice so that they can make that choice. Um, it's not always gonna work, but I would say for every time I have had someone be transphobic or homophobic or push back against my initiatives, I have also had someone be the absolute opposite. Um, 
and people who have encouraged me, who've expanded on my ideas and my passions more than I ever thought were possible. Um, yeah, I guess that would be my advice. Well, MedTwitter has been incredible because I personally, I yes. haven't, there, yeah, MedTwitter, I've met so many people, like including yourself. And I honestly don't think this podcast would be possible without Twitter, which sounds like a weird attribution. And Twitter is probably going to call us in a few days, but like taking control <laughs> of this. But I like for a long time, and even right, I'm writing a presentation right now, and I don't know that many physicians where I live who are like LGBTQ plus friendly or who identify um, with the community themselves. And when I did look it up, there weren't, there was a very, very like select, like I could count the number of physicians on my hand. Um, so I think for Twitter, like, just social media in general, connecting all of us in such a great way and showing like you have support. And I think what you said earlier about how even in like faces of adversity and, you know, there's such a strong pushback with love and support. And I think that's the thing that we need to keep pushing on. As an incoming student, is it possible to know who among your peers is also queer? <laughs> yeah, um, Definitely. I can't speak for every school because unfortunately I didn't get into every school in America, which is wild to me. But um, I know at my school, for example, and honestly everywhere I interviewed, um, the queer people wanted to meet other queer people. So it was very clear right off the bat um, who else was queer in the cohort. And I would, we would always find each other, always talk about it. Um, at my school, uh, Spectrum is our like GSA, essentially, it's our uh, LGBT affinity group. I was one of the co-leaders and we have a program where um, the administrative department forwards us the information of students who said they were interested in LGBT connections. Um, it's one of the things on their secondary that they actually ask students to mark. And it's not a part of the application. It doesn't go to faculty um, besides the administrative department who forwards us their emails and says, hey, the student marked that they were interested. and. Then we will have somebody from Spectrum reach out to that student and say like, hi, like, are you going to be in town? Would you want to meet over Zoom? Um, if you want to meet in person, we can get coffee and talk about all of your questions. Um, so that I think is a wonderful way to meet queer people. I also did just reach out cold email again, um, any GSAs I saw at other schools to say like, hey, I'm interested in the school. Um, I want to know from your perspective as a queer person. A lot of people responded to that. Certainly possible. Um, maybe not when you are first applying to the schools, but definitely when you're at the interview level. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess my question is like, like today I was in a meeting with, um, a medical student, uh, sorry, a medical school representative. Um, and I wasn't sure whether it'd be okay for me to ask, like, what are the LGBTQ plus considerations you guys take in your endo repro, um, curriculum and things mm -hmm. of that sort. I just don't know is that. I mean, I felt like it was grounds for them to like change the relationship almost and like see me in a different light. Although I have the feeling for this sure. is going to end up being all that I talk about similar to, I mean, it's, <laughs> I already know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that is 100% what happened to me. I was just way too gay in my application yeah. to not be out. It was like getting ridiculous. But um, I think a way that I've seen people do it is saying like, I'm really interested in health equity and oh. I want to know how you guys are making moves to address uh, underrepresented populations, vulnerable populations. Can you tell me about LGBT healthcare? Can you tell me about your efforts to um, support and empower black uh, and indigenous and other people of color in your healthcare system? Um, if you lump it with a lot of other things. Um, I think it's 
most people don't pick up on it. Honestly, most straight people don't pick up on, you, you have to be so gay for them to pick up on it. Like, I've been so surprised by people who have no idea that I'm queer. And then they're like, oh, like, so you're not out. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm so, I, I like don't know how to be more out. People will kind of see what they want to see. So I would be not so scared of being clocked um, if that is like a big worry. And just saying like, I'm interested in health equity and social justice, and this is important to me. And that's a value every medical student should have. Um, and especially since LGBT health is such a hot topic now, I think you have more leeway with that as well. Um, I will say that I think I started my application not being out and then tra transitioned haha, to being out um, because when I first started applying to medical schools, my goal was just to get into medical school. And I was like, I don't care what medical school, I don't care what it is, I just wanna get in, I just need to get in. And as I've gone through medical school, I've realized that it, it's more important to go to a medical school where you feel safe um, because it's so hard. And I cannot imagine doing all this while closeted. Um, it's certainly possible, people do it, but I, I would encourage anyone who um, has a choice to be open, to make sure they're going somewhere that they like to. Um, the, the whole application process is focused on like how you have to impress other schools, but like schools should be impressing you too. They're also recruiting you. They benefit from having you there. And especially as a, a queer student, especially as a diverse student with unique experiences and thoughts and perspectives, like you are a huge value to any institution. And I think a lot of queer people don't, don't, don't think that, don't, you know, know that. I mean, institutions want to have, well, they want to have a token queer, first of all, to point to, um, but they want, <laughs> they want to have that. They want to have people who look like trailblazers, who are trailblazers. They want to have people pay them money, you know, and submit to their whims for four years. It looks good for the school. So never feel that you have to suppress yourself so much for a school because they should be recruiting and impressing you too. But was your essay mostly about like, was it centered around like LGBTQ plus type thing? My essay? Oh, sorry, personal statement. Oh, my yeah. personal statement. Oh, my personal statement was not about being queer. It was about being um, first gen uh, Cuban oh. and how I grew up kind of translating for my family. And that was not appropriate, but it did make me love healthcare and want to give back to my community. Um, so I think in my supplemental essays, I talked a lot about LGBT stuff, but my, my personal statement was, was actually not about that. <laughs> okay. Just out of curiosity, why do you say it's not appropriate for you, for you to have been doing that? I mean, no one who is a family of the patient should ever be translating. Oh, it's I just see. a HIPAA violation. Um, and it's not good translate. I was like a child. Like, it's weird for me to know medical things about my family. And I didn't know the medical words. I didn't really understand what was going on. I mean, the, the miscommunications were, there was a lot, there was a lot of miscommunication and it's just not providing best quality healthcare for someone. So if anyone, if you ever see anyone trying to use family as interpreters or friends as interpreters, mm -mm, hospitals have the resources. They can call up an interpreter. <laughs> um, they just don't want to. Yeah, okay, cool. Cause like, I feel like this really common practice. Like my, one of my friends speaks Urdu and uh, when his grandmother was in the hospital, like he was there day in and day out translating for his grandmother. And I mean, I, I thought it was spectacular. Like I thought it was a really altruistic thing, but it was, I mean, he was really young at the time. 
you know, and so like yeah. be all in all day when you are also in classes. Oh, it's it's terrible. I mean, it's not even strictly it's not even legal. <laughs> like it's it's a HIPAA violation. Um, but but the people mm-hmm. who are being interpreted for don't know they don't know that. Right. But for the um yeah. like okay, I know that we're like really focusing on this. It's just I have like like yeah. So like in the note though, because like in um like I'm also an EMT, so we're allowed to write like oh so and so like the parent or whoever translated. Um, like is that a how come no one ever like calls us out on that then? Like that it's a HIPAA violation or is it just not? Is it like the kind of thing where it's like it flies under the radar because technically, um, it's in the best interest of the patient but not necessarily for like their medical care or actually I mean shouldn't it be part of their medical care because you don't want to divulge all their personal information to like their their relative or whoever it is yeah so i think a lot of times the like unspoken assumption of writing it in the note it's like oh we totally had a talk with a patient about consent and they insisted on having the family translate for them oh. um i mean it's legal if the patient says it mm-hmm. um it's just that usually the patient doesn't say yeah it. <laughs> yeah and i mean patients will say yes if they because a lot of time doctors are like who can translate for you you know they don't say we have interpreters so a patient's going to say this person can translate for me which sounds like consent, but it's not informed consent. Um, So I think it's inappropriate. I think it is very racist. Um, I think that's why it doesn't get called out, to be honest. I think that it's a lot of like old white men who don't wanna spend extra time with patients of color and they get away with it because they're in power. Um, It sucks. And even as a medical student, I can't legally translate for my patients and I still have doctors all the time saying like oh you speak this like I speak three other languages and I've had doctors constantly tell you know ask me to translate for patients and I'm like I'm not a certified interpreter just because I speak three languages doesn't mean I know all the medical words in those languages um it doesn't mean I know how to like talk about consent in every language um even that is is inappropriate and people don't know that um um, I will also say that all of my interviews, I talked about being queer. Um, and it was very obvious when a school appreciated that. Um, and that's actually a huge part of what played into like the choice I made for schooling when I saw that they were appreciative of that part of my identity and saw how that was like a benefit to their school. So it's not always a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, yeah. <laughs> it can no. be a good thing. Yeah, no, I was going to say, like, obviously I'm not applying to medical school, but I feel like if you did disclose that you were being queer and are are being queer, are queer, and um, the medical school wasn't appreciative, you probably wouldn't want to go there anyway, so. No, I would not. I mean, also, I think it's the other thing is that, like, it helps that I'm a queer activist. So I can say, like, oh, I'm not just queer, but I'm doing queer healthcare, Mm -hmm. um, which makes it like look better, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> How do you be a queer yeah. activist like outside of healthcare? I know it's outside of outside what? of healthcare. I know that's a really, really broad based question. Um, but I don't really know how to do that outside of like, you know, asking the patients. I mean you're like doing it right now. <laughs> oh, does this ca- oh yeah, I guess that's true actually. I guess so. A hundred percent. Oh, okay, that's a good actually it's so funny because yesterday um on campus like we advertised the podcast like in our newsletters or and things of that sort and uh this person stopped me and was like well we have to get covid tested and i swiped my card and the person who was checking it was like oh my gosh like 
first of all, you're my TA. And like, second of all, like, are you like a host for this podcast? And I was like, yeah. And everyone's first resp- initial response is like, oh my God, like you're going to look so good for men's school. I'm like, guys, I'm not doing this for men's school. Like I keep forgetting. Like, I don't even know. If, <laughs> I don't even know if this is something that, I mean, I, I mean, I care about it a lot, so I probably will talk about it. Um, I'm like inching towards talking about it with like our pre-health like admissions, uh, not admissions, our pre-health advising team, because I keep accidentally referencing things I've learned from interviews in my conversations with mm. them. And they're like, why are you interviewing medical students? And I'm like, oh, it's just like, uh, you know, they just want to run through their mock and they're like, but you're <laughs> underqualified. And I'm like, this is a good point, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Anyway. I don't think anyone like being as a queer person, I don't think you can be underqualified to explore what it is to be a queer person yeah i agree with that yeah i also really like that not that they know that yeah. but i think that. i mean I don't, that's what i'm gonna <laughs> stick to too where did you get this uh phrase mar- moral injury i wrote it down i got it from twitter oh, it's from twitter. like a week ago and i was like oh my god this is what i've been experiencing yeah it was it was on med twitter somewhere um talking about like racism in medicine super super helpful yeah changed my life yeah i like this terminology Good a lot vocab. yeah I feel like the the great thing about, and I don't feel like I'm, I feel like for a long time I didn't have the language to vocalize, like, you know, first of all, I didn't come out to myself because I didn't know that was even an option, you know? And then with the podcast, like, I've become more confident and, you know, the terminology that I'm picking up through here too, like, I'm going to go around and tell everyone, like, what are you experiencing? It's probably moral injury. Like, I'm not going to go around, like, obviously di- labeling things for people, but like, I think there's... The language that we give in this podcast is like so important also i should know before when i said that i'm better than shrita for the medical school thing um i should know it's like a running joke i don't actually think i'm better than shrita for that i'm better than her in other regards but like it's i just wanted to make sure because i realized that comes off as like condescending sometimes she makes that joke a lot and it's fun it's okay honestly you're better for med school than i am i was a fucking art student like i showed up and people were like are you are you lost like yeah, it's always cool to have like those perspectives too, though, rather than just someone who's like been in this since they were like five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us. Of course. And yeah, oh my God, I just want to add before we finish, I did forget to mention social media, which is incredible. The hashtag LGBTQ in healthcare is amazing. Um, and this goes for pre-meds as well. There are a lot of Facebook groups like LGBT pre-meds, um, there's the Medical Student Pride Association, MSPA, there's Glamma, the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association. They have Instagrams, they have Facebook groups, they have conferences. Um, the online community is gonna be your biggest support. It was my biggest support, even with a class that's like extremely queer. I would say one of the queerest classes in America, probably. Um, having online support has been absolutely crucial. Yeah, it's been amazing. And I'm so happy to have met you guys through it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, I think that's it. It was so nice. Thank you for taking the time. Happy Pride, everyone. It's been a while since our last episode, and in honor of this occasion, we're sharing this special interview. Happy Pride. So, uh, to jump right in, there was an element that Davey mentioned, and it was um, the concept of being an elder gay. So being an elder gay, um, based on their description, is being a mentor to the younger generations when you yourself have come out um, earlier on, uh, so you might have a better sense of community and help might be able to help somebody else who's just coming out to also develop that for themselves. 
Um, so I think this is especially relevant right now because I'm taking a class called Queer Theory, um, and we were reading a book called Stone Butch Blues, uh, which is written by Leslie Feinberg, and their novel is about being like a it's well it's from the perspective of a butch lesbian in 1970s America, and to be honest, before I read this book, I didn't really understand the concept of like butch and femme, and I don't think I really understood the struggles of the queer community because right now it's so easy for me to it's pretty easy for me to be on social media and you know find people in my community whether that's through my Twitter uh with the hashtags that we mentioned or even just um at school we have the LGBTQ plus center and reading Stonebridge Blues really put into perspective like how far the queer community has come and of course it's written from the perspective of, of white America so it's not um all i i guess it's not all encompassing in terms of how layered it is for other communities especially minorities um it was really cool that i was able to learn this term originally from davy and then explore it further in this book and i honestly i'm inspired like not only to have this podcast but loki i also want to make a book club which you would not be invited to shoot that yeah i don't i don't i'm not really good at reading why I've decided to be a podcast host. Literacy is not really my strong suit. <laughs> but um, no, one thing that came up for me, I mean, we kind of did discuss pronouns in this interview. It's something that comes up a lot in our conversations. And I was actually um, updating my LinkedIn recently. And they were like, oh, do you want to like select your pronouns? And I, I thought that was really cool. I do know that sometimes these things can feel like a little corporate or performative or whatever, but I still think it was nice to see that even LinkedIn, which is like, I guess, considered like a professional space to kind of have this, starting to have this kind of incremental acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, gender and sexuality is more of a spectrum rather than the binary that it was like presented to be as for so long. And so that made me kind of happy. And I know that I'm not on social media, but I know that for my friends that are like on Instagram and stuff, everyone, those options are starting to pop up. So I think it's cool. It's like a, it, it's a little way of kind of normalizing it and everywhere. So, yeah. Yeah. It's actually kind of weird. It's cause like right now my pronouns are in my Zoom link. I can't remember how, I can't remember when I put my pronouns into my, my Zoom name, but also like, I don't know why that's not always been a thing, because I feel like even at, I mean, I haven't filled out forms for too long as an adult, adult, um, but I feel like it's so normal for us to just, like, pick off gender, like, adding pronouns is so easy, I don't know why that's not a thing on every single platform, and especially with Instagram stuff, like you mentioned before, I mean, your friends are on Instagram, and they're putting in their, um, they're putting in their pronouns, and you also mentioned that, like, they're losing followers too. So I think that's a good way to like kind of yeah. squeeze out people. Who Weed out those annoying need. people. We don't need that energy in our lives, honestly. Yeah, exactly. Like putting in your pronouns makes people leave. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. So Loki has the same energy as when I went to Trump's Twitter account and I saw who I followed, who was following him, and then I just unfollowed all of those people. It's the same energy, same game here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, do we have any other updates? We're moving in together. I think that's exciting. Yeah, it's it's something. Because the funny thing is, whenever I meet people on the street, or not that I'm going around meeting people on the street all the time necessarily, um, but I always call Shreetha my, like, we, okay, so just so that you guys know, 
Um, we met sophomore year. Well, we met freshman year, but we didn't really talk, so we don't talk about that. Um, but we started rooming together in sophomore year, but we became friends within that, unfortunately. And then junior year, we didn't room together. Oh, by the way, I'm in my senior year. She has graduated at this point. Oh, congratulations! Thank you. I've graduated since our last episode. This Thanks, has been your... Jeff. Wow. <laughs> You're so old now. I know. JK. JK. She's not using that degree, guys. She's using. She's doing the same thing she was doing before <laughs> she graduated. So, anyway... <laughs> So, I'm joking, she was doing really big things, and big shout out to her for progressing in life. I hope to do that too someday. <laughs> you will, you will. It's okay. Okay, cool. Oh yeah, anyway, so going back to like talking to random people, I always refer to Shrita as my, like, I never know whether to say roommate or my friend, because we're, like, at one point we were both, and so now I think that just despite Shrita, when I meet people going forward, I'm just gonna be like, oh yeah, that's my roommate. I'm not going to say that we're friends. I'm just going to say, like, yeah, we're roommates. And go yeah, we're just there. roommates. And we spend way too much of our time together. Yeah, seriously. Which our is why I have not moved questions. in yet. Because I was like, I think I need some space. I think I need to, you know. That's okay. I'm using your room as a garbage room right now. So it's not a big deal. Fun fact, they've started doing it here, too, while I'm still home. So it's oh, fine. Fun. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. well... This has been our special, and we hope that you guys check in again soon. JK, we will be checking in, because we're the ones with the platform. Yes. So on that note, we're going to wrap here. Yeah. Have a nice day. Yeah, but we'll see you soon. Hope you're having a good summer. And happy and Pride. And happy Pride. Yep. Okay, we Bye. love you guys. Bye.